Welcome. Welcome to the highlight of our celebration for the end of a most successful campaign. And the event is the sixth Golden Rule Lecture. This is a series designed to bring outstanding engineering leaders to Princeton to tell us how they move and shake the world and how to inspire our students for greater deeds. Now, the past Gordon Wu lecturers have been Gordon Wu, class of 58, <laughs> is a builder of highways, rapid transit, and power stations. Then we have Norman Augustine, class of 57, CEO of Lockheed Martin Company. And then we have Phil Condit, class of 65, CEO of Boeing. And then we switch tech to Tangling Tian, class of 59, Chancellor of UC Berkeley. It's actually some kind of a CEO also, as you know. <laughs> then we had Eric Schmidt, class of 76, CEO of Novell. Today, the Millennium Lecture will be given by the undisputed superhero of e-commerce. <laughs> now, I want to first give you a quiz. Has any of you in the audience ever bought a book or music from Amazon.com? If so, raise your hands. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Jeff, no commercials, please. <laughs> Jeff Bezos, class of 86, is the founder and CEO of Amazon.com. Now, to make a personal introduction, I'm asking someone who knows him very well to introduce him. And it's Dave Dobkin, chair of the computer science department. Dave? Thank you, Jim. It's an incredible honor to be allowed to introduce Jeff but at the same time, it's an impossible task because there's almost nothing that I can tell you. So I decided to go through a list of all of the things that I'm not going to tell you and then tell you a few things that probably aren't as well known. So I won't tell you that Jeff was Time's magazine, Time Magazine's Person of the Year for 1999. And Jim stole my thunder, so you know, there must be somebody here who's been living on a different planet for the last few years, so you never heard of Amazon. but. For the rest of you, chairman, CEO, founder, and uh, probably you all know about his famous ride across the country where he made his wife, Mackenzie, who's also a Princeton alum and a uh, writer, drive so that he could type in his business plan on his laptop. <laughs> <laughs> probably you know about his walk in Central Park with D.E. Shaw where he explained why he was leaving his job in the hedge fund to go out and do this weird thing that nobody could quite understand in 1993 and 94. But I, I did some research. I talked to uh, one of Jeff's sophomore class roommates and said, okay, so what was he like? You know, what's, what's the real story? And, uh, in particular, how can I embarrass him before his talk? And, uh, so the first response I got was, you know, no matter what the physics problem was, Jeff could solve it. So you know, those of us who live in the engineering school have all met a physics problem that we couldn't solve. And so I was impressed. Then I thought about it and said, OK, so you, so you can do physics. That doesn't lead to revolutions in electronic commerce. So I'm still stuck. So I went back to this uh, roommate and said, Okay, what's the real scoop? And he said, well, you know, at the end of sophomore year, we had this couch in our suite that I don't remember if we got it from a dumpster or if we honestly paid $10 for it, but it, it was ratty. And we dug deep underneath the pillows, and we found this great artifact. And we hung the artifact. We tied it to a piece of string and hung it from the entry to the suite. And it stayed there. And we figured, you know, since we've all walked through Fitz Randolph Gate, we've all done quite well in our lives, so there must have been some dust that came off of that. And the magical dust is what made us successful. 
<laughs> Without further ado, I can introduce you to Jeff Bezos. <laughs> Thank you. And, and David, I can guess, even though I had seven roommates that year, six roommates, or it's a seven-man suite, that um, it was Dave Hitz you were talking to. But I can tell just from the... And it's not true, by the way, clear overbilling on the physics problem that I never met that I couldn't solve. Um, uh, in fact, I came to Princeton because I wanted to study physics. In fact, by the time I got in quantum mechanics, I realized I wasn't smart enough to be a physicist. This was one of those like hugely painful self-reflections uh, where I said, gosh, you know, I was at the same time I was taking computer science courses, and so I was loving that. Because uh, I didn't, you know, I didn't want to be, hey, Bill, hi. Let's see people in the audience I know. I, I didn't, I, 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 uh, I thought it would be a painful existence to be a mediocre theoretical physicist. I thought, gosh, that would be really, really bad. Um, uh, in a way that so few things are. I mean, that would just be really bad. So I got out of that, and it was a very, a very good decision. And there were half a dozen people in my class in quantum mechanics who could so effortlessly solve things that I would work so hard on to solve. And that was, I think all of us, hopefully everybody has had that experience in one realm or another. Well, actually, if you haven't, contact me. Um, <laughs> we'd like to hire you. Um, we, we, um, in fact, uh, I, I've always enjoyed physics. And, and uh, you know, in the old days, I understand from uh, uh, talking to people today, that's no longer true. Um, Physics was taught in Palmer Hall, and I think it's, most, it's mostly moved to Fine Hall now to the tower. But um, Palmer Hall had this sort of augustness about it because, you know, Einstein had paced the halls there. And, and uh, um, I remember, in fact, after this lecture, I've asked if I could go check to see if it's still there, a piece of graffiti in the men's bathroom stall in, in uh, Palmer Hall that is to this day the best piece of graffiti I have ever seen. And it, it said... Um, E equals MC squared, and it was circled, a big circle around it, and, and then it had been graded, and the grade was C plus. Um, and, uh, and the uh, professor giving the grade had gone on to annotate, uh, very good, Einstein, but next time show your work. Um, and, uh, and, I, I, and in a further conversation, I was led to understand that this uh, that the building was recently painted, and so I find myself already, uh, having graduated only 14 years ago, uh, in a phase where I too am one of those alumni wishing that things around here just wouldn't change so much. Uh, a valuable piece of graffiti, possibly lost. Um, I'll tell you one other Princeton anecdote. I was a, I was a very uh, uh, studious student, and I spent a lot of, most of my time in libraries in the basement of von Neumann Hall, and uh, before we had the beautiful computer science building that we have now. And it was, uh, uh, but I did, I, did, I did also find time to have some fun. Actually, in, at this stage, I kind of wish I'd found time to have more fun. I talked to a group of undergraduates earlier today, and I recommended to them all that they find some time to, you know, not just study, study hard. David was looking at me crossly as I was saying this. But, but um, uh, one of the things that we did was we played beer pong. And this is, to distinguish this, there are two kinds of uh, games that involve beer and ping pong at Princeton. One is beer pong and one is blow pong. The blow pong is a very different kind of game. Beer pong, you set up a cup on each end of the uh, ping pong table and you try to hit the ball into the opponent's cup. And if you can hit the ball into the opponent's cup, they have to drink the whole beer. If you tip the ball on the cup, they have to take a sip of the beer. Now, the wonderful thing about beer pong is that it's, a, uh, it's an unstable game. Uh, so if you can get the opponent to drink the first few glasses of beer, you're virtually assured victory as, as the opponent's uh, reflexes weaken and their coordination wavers. So that, that was a, and, and uh, me and my team, we were undisputed beer pong champions uh, at Princeton. And I have to say though, uh, that it was because of Marianne Meglin, my partner, class of 87, who was uh, anybody who was her partner would have been the undisputed champions. Uh, Marianne <clears throat> would even go so far, and a very, very modest person would go so far as to play strip beer pong 
And that was only because she knew she wasn't going to be taken off her clothes. She was, she was that good. That's just how good she was. Um, now, in, in the uh, spring of 1994, I came across this most startling fact that web usage was growing at 2,300% a year. And things do not grow that fast outside of bacterial cultures or, you know, other... And, um, and the fact that the web was growing that quickly was even a sort of a self-referential fact. As far as I know, that fact was only available at that time on the web. There's a guy named John Quarterman who was keeping statistics uh, on web uh, uh, usage growth rates. And I was, uh, you know, very skeptical when I saw this growth rate figure and actually poked around a bit into his methodology and so on and, and came to realize pretty quickly, gosh, this is probably correct. This thing is growing faster than uh, anything really that had been seen before. Um, now, it turns out that even in the spring of 94, this was by far, far from an original observation. There were already, you know, uh, people way ahead who a year earlier had detected this phenomenon. Uh, and, you know, people like Mark Andreessen and so on and so on, people in the very early days, even Jim Clark discovered this thing very, very early. Um, but, but this was a startling um, fact. And so I set about trying to think of a business plan that would make sense in the context of that phenomenal growth rate. And I made a list of 20 different products uh, and was trying to pick the first best product to sell online. And I force ranked them according to a bunch of different criteria and ultimately picked books. And the reason that I picked books is because books are incredibly unusual in one respect. And that is that there are more items in the book category than there are items in any other category by far. There are over three million books active and in print at any given time. Um, so, uh, and music is 300,000 items to give you a sense of scale. Then, um, uh, and, and the reason that the number of items was so relevant is because with that number of items, you could build something online that simply could not exist any other way. And the web of 1994 was so primitive and so buggy, this infant technology, at that time, if you could do something another way, you should do it that other way. There was uh, no excuse to use the web unless it was the only way. And there was no way to build a physical bookstore with 1.1 million titles. That's how many titles we launched with. Today we have over 18 million items in our catalog. And the, if you tried to print that and do it as a paper catalog, 1.1 million books, it would have been the size of 12 New York City phone books. Um, the largest physical bookstores, 150,000 titles. So there's just no way you could do it any other way. And so in that sense, it was a perfect web application. We worked for about a year. Um, uh, David mentioned the, the, the drive across the country. Um, we, we um, so my, my wife did drive. We flew to Fort Worth, Texas, where we picked up a 1988 Chevy Blazer from my dad, who gave it to us for free. We'd been living in New York City and didn't have a car. The 1988 Chevy Blazer, that exact model year, is one that Consumer Reports says not to buy used under any circumstances. <laughs> But they say nothing about giving it away for free, uh, or taking it for free. I think they do say to give it away for free. I think that's a, um, so we, um, uh, on that drive, a couple of interesting things happened. One of them was, when you realize that something is growing 2,300% a year, you want to move quickly. So I called a friend in Seattle and said, you know, can you recommend a local attorney who could help me with some you know, simple stuff like incorporating the company and opening bank accounts. It's going to take us five days to get to Seattle, and I want to have that stuff done ahead of time. And um, he recommended an attorney who happened to have been his divorce attorney. So the, the Amazon.com was actually incorporated. It was actually a general practitioner, but sort of incorporated by a divorce attorney. I don't know what that what that means. And um, and and. Uh, um, and he asked me, the first, I was on the cell phone in the car, and he said, what do you want the company to be called? We're going to incorporate it. And I had thought about this. I said, Cadabra, as an abracadabra. But he heard Cadaver, and he said, Cadaver? I'm like, oh, no, no. No, Cadabra, like abracadabra. Oh, I've got it. And, he, you know, he went off and did it. Um, but we changed the name of the company about four months, three or four months later, and uh, to Amazon.com. 
And the most frequent question I get asked is probably why Amazon, and it has nothing to do with single-breasted female warriors. It is Earth's biggest river, Earth's biggest selection. That's, uh, that's where, where the company name came from. And so we, um, uh, I stopped in, uh, in, in Santa Cruz, where I interviewed the person who became our VP of engineering, a guy named Shell Kappen, who, in my opinion, is still the, uh, is the most important person ever at Amazon Economy. He wrote all of our early software and did a fantastic job. Shell and I um, really interviewed each other over blueberry pancakes in Santa Cruz. By the way, getting the 88 Chevy Blazer to Santa Cruz is a story of its own that we will not tell right now. But, but the, um, the, uh, the, the, the Shell, it took me three months to convince Shell to come do this crazy thing. And the, it was just a piece of paper. And, uh, and I was making our own desks, so I made them out of doors and four by fours. And I finally, after three months of working on Shell, I got him to accept. And he was going to start at a certain date and blah, blah, blah. I called him back the next day and just offhandedly said, oh, and how tall do you want your desk to be? Because I'm building our desks. And there was like 10 seconds of silence on the phone. And I thought, oh, shoot. He's reconsidering because he realizes what a two-bit operation this is. We're building our own desks. And about a year later, I asked um, Shell, you know, when I asked you about the desk height, you paused for like 10 seconds before answering. I'm just wondering if you were reconsidering at the time. And he, he said, oh, no, I was just considering how tall I wanted my desk to be, um, which I thought was very logical. You know, that's, that made a lot of sense to me. We, we opened the store in July of 1995, and we, uh, we opened it in a... Uh, the way we got our first customers is we had a six-week beta test where we had everything up and working and, and uh, we were debugging it with a group of about 300 friends and families. So it was literally moms and dads. There were about 10 people in the company at that point. There's moms and dads and brothers and sisters and friends and college roommates and so on and so on. And um, we'd ask these people to keep it to themselves what we were doing, but to you know buy stuff. And, by the way, your credit card will be charged, and, and you will be shipped this stuff. And, and um, in some cases, actually, I remember one of the uh, unique bugs that um, my friend Jonathan LeBlanc found during that period was that you could order a negative quantity of books, <laughs> and we would duly credit your credit card. Um, so that was, we were very grateful for him for finding that that little zinger, and um, we so you know things proceeded well. And the way we launched the store is we um, we uh, told these three, emailed these three hundred people, and we said, "Okay, thanks for keeping it secret. Now go ahead and tell your friends." And they did. They each, I, I you know, I think each of them emailed five or ten people, something like that, and. Um, that was it. That was all the marketing we did. And the web was a very small place at the time, uh, in, in July of 95. And so word of mouth traveled very, very rapidly. I claim it's still very, very rapid today. But it was a small place without much noise. And so something that offered a truly unique customer experience could grow very quickly just by word of mouth. And um, it, it was literally just a number of days before we had to deprogram. We had programmed all the computers in the office to ring a bell whenever we got an order. And uh, within about three days, we had to shut that off because the bell was actually becoming annoying, which was a high-quality problem. And then um, we, by the way, I'll tell you, for any of you who, you know, have been entrepreneurs, I'm sure you might know this experience uh, start, or started your own business of any kind or, or been in a small operation. That day when you first get an order from a stranger is a very good day. I remember very clearly looking over the, uh, you know, the logs of orders with the 10 people who were in the office at that time. We're all looking at this one name. We're like, is that your mom? That's not my mom. I don't know. I, I, whose mom is this? Anyway, we're, um, and uh, that's just a great feeling. So we... We, uh, the first 30 days completely changed our view of the future in our business plan. Uh, if you look at the original business plan for Amazon.com, 
It was to build a, a, a company very slowly, and uh, we thought it would take a long, long time for people to adapt their habits to buying in this way. I remember talking to you know the ten folks there at the time, and you know trying to set expectations extremely low, and reminding everybody it would take a long time, even when people were like sitting in front of their web browser with full-time web access, which a lot of people didn't have at that time anyway. Then they would, you know, instead of buying from us, they'd probably just make a mental note to stop at the bookstore on the way home, even if they're like reading the book review in front of their computer, because that's the kind of mental transformation that has to happen. Well, we were completely wrong about that, and I believe the reason is that the internet at that time was, even though it was relatively small compared to today, it was 100% made up of these wonderful people called early adopters, and they are exactly the kind of people who don't make a mental note to stop at the bookstore on the way home. They say, oh, here's a cool new way to do this. And they, they like, they're just fast learners. So then they adapt their practices very, very rapidly. And so the business actually grew uh, much faster than anybody expected. In the first 30 days, we shipped books to 45 different countries so all over the world and all 50 states. So far beyond our expectations that I immediately began trying to raise more money so that we could Really, you know, we were onto something, and at that point, we had, um, uh, well, we, so the company was initially founded with about $300,000 from my parents, which was a significant fraction of their life savings. I told them there was a 70% chance they would lose their money, um, and like a 29% chance they might get it back. Um, it, it actually worked out extremely well for them, and they're, and they're, and they're, and they're, and they're, and they're very happy about it. But. But um, the, the, uh, the, the, the next million dollars we raised, I had to approach 60 people to get about 20 people to invest about $50,000 each. And that um, gave us a little bit of money to have a little bit of headroom. Uh, in December of 95, we were profitable, which, and it, which frustrated me greatly at that time because when you're on a success of that magnitude, you should be investing in it at that phase. And the... Uh, uh, so, uh, so our, I, one way to summarize this is, you know, our initial business plan was to build a small, profitable company, and of course, what we've done is build a large, unprofitable company. <laughs> it's a, uh, 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 and and by the way, that you know, that has been a conscious decision to try and make maximum the the opportunity that we saw before us in this sort of green field called e-commerce. So, we. Um, uh, uh, there, this, in the first six months, there's so many stories to tell. I'll, I'll just tell one, and that is that there was a customer who ordered from us from Bulgaria in the first six months, which I was surprised by because I wouldn't have expected them in you know uh, the second half of '95 to have internet access in Bulgaria, but but they did. And the uh, but this person had internet access, but didn't have a credit card. So he paid us with cash. He mailed us two crisp $100 bills, which, by the way, is a method of payment that we discourage. We do not, we do not encourage this. It's like a pain. Um, and, and so we get this, and the interesting thing is the money was inside a floppy disk. So he had taken these two little $100 bills, folded them up a little package, and put them inside the door of a floppy disk. And um, then on the cover of the floppy disk, he'd written a note. And the note said... The custom, the money is inside the floppy disk. <laughs> the customs inspectors, the customs inspectors steal the money, but they don't read English. <laughs> and so, you know, we open up the floppy disk, and sure enough, inside there are, you know, these two $100 bills, and we, you know, the customer gets their books, everybody's happy. Um, but it, I think that's a great story to demonstrate the boundaryless nature of the internet and the degree to which people will go to get products even when they live in places, whether they be places like Bulgaria or even in this country in rural areas, where they don't have access to a sophisticated, you know, um, uh, retail uh, network. And and uh, so, and this person was ordering computer books, by the way. And you know, we never found out whether they were doing something productive or whether they were hacking into the Pentagon. You know, that we just don't know. But, um, but, the, but it, is a, uh, uh, it is a remarkable fact of the Internet how global it is. In, in fact, in the, 
in, in Europe today, the number one shopping domain in Europe is Amazon.co.uk. The number two shopping domain in Europe is Amazon.com. This is measured by media metrics. And the number three shopping domain is Amazon.de. And the reason, even though the stores have only been around for a couple of years, and the reason that those stores are so successful so quickly is because we already have hundreds of thousands of customers in those countries and have had for five years. People have been buying from us from, um, from the U.S. website. So in countries like Sweden, where we don't have a presence at all, we're the number 36 best-known brand name, right after Pampers, um, <laughs> in, in, in some number of spots ahead of Volvo, you know, in, in Sweden. Um, so that is, that, that this global nature of the Internet is quite extraordinary. The, the reason then, so why have we grown so rapidly? I believe that the primary reason is customer experience. And I'm a big believer that all sustained growth is a result of sustained improvements in customer experience. So I claim you can look at almost any uh, industry and see this. The cell phone industry is a great example. So if you go back 10 or 15 years, cell phones were the size of cinder blocks and um, had very short talk times and you know you couldn't travel with them or you went out of range whereas today you look at the cell phone it's very small has long talk times and you can you know have a uninterrupted conversation on a cell phone these days for you know three or four minutes before you get disconnected it's a <laughs> it's a it's a truly extraordinary um, increase in the customer experience and that's why the industry has grown so dramatically uh, we had a, I think we had a very lucky break with our corporate culture as regards customer obsession. And it came from the fact that, in that, in those, in, that the business exploded so rapidly that we were woefully unprepared to, to fulfill the orders of our customers. And so every single person in the company, every software engineer, every person in the marketing department, everybody was hands down on deck wrapping, shipping, packages, doing customer service for really like the first year. Um, we, you know, we would, so the software engineers would work for like six hours on making the code better, and they'd spend the next 12 hours shipping packages, um, which was very exhilarating. But it also gave us a real feel for the customer, because you know, when you touch that package, you're the last person to touch that package before it goes out, the whole company starts to learn what it's about. And I believe corporate cultures are maybe half what you plan for and half just total luck uh, what you get. And I think this was a piece that we really got because we all learned early on how much it mattered. Also, if everybody in the company is doing customer service, you get to see early on what problems it causes if something doesn't go well and how important it is to try really hard to just do it right the first time. So the company sort of grew up in that, in that fire and that worked well. We had a really interesting experience in May of 1997. May of 1997 is when we took the company public. And um, uh, the, the, uh, it was also the time when Barnes & Noble came online. So they, uh, we had a, sort of a two-year window without a lot of competition. And then in May of 97 is when we were branded Amazon.toast. And which was, it was scary for all of us because we thought that the, the, the argument that the guy who came up with that, which is, I thought was very clever, by the way. I mean, we, we did sort of, you know, grudgingly respect this, um, this little thing because it was one of the, it was a meme and it caught on like wildfire. It was in every article. Amazon.toast was a guy named George Colney. He was a very smart guy and the CEO of Forrester Research. And, and George was on the lecture circuit using this phrase and his argument was very compelling and it went like this. Well, they've had a great two-year run, but they're a small company. They have 125 people, that's what we had at that time, and $60 million a year in annualized sales. Barnes & Noble now is, they're now competing against a big company, Barnes & Noble, that has 30,000 employees and $3 billion a year in sales. And all the purchasing power that comes with that with respect to the publishers and uh, a brand name which was well known. At that time, our brand name was not, not known the way it is today. It's very hard to remember back three years. Uh, but, but very few people, we know because we did the studies, 
um, and looked at unaided first mention of our brand name and compared it to that of Barnes & Noble and were like, that's not good. Um, so I think at that point in time, we made the most important decision that we have ever made as a company. Uh, and it was that we were going to be a customer-obsessed company instead of a competitor-obsessed company. And I think both models can work in different business situations. So I don't see this as an as a absolute uh, you know, rule of business or anything. But for us, it was playing to our strengths. Because in fact, you know, we didn't have the firepower of our competitors. Uh, and we had something which we thought would be very hard to replicate for somebody who hadn't been doing it for two years, which was this culture of customer obsession. So I, 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 I called an all-hands meeting of these 125 people, got them together because in all, everyone in the press, this was just you know, totally days after IPO, the stock price was trading below the offering price. It was, you know, so we put it out at $18 a share, which was split adjusted as $1.50 in today's, uh, today's dollars. And, um, and it had traded from 18 down to 15. And it had gone up for a few days and then come down. And, and um, so I got everybody together and I said, look, I want you to be afraid. I want you to wake up every morning with your sheets drenched in sweat. <laughs> but I want you to be very precise about what it is that you should be afraid of. And you should be afraid not of our competitors, but of our customers. Let's pay attention to our competitors because maybe we can learn from them. But let's obsess over our customers. And if we can stay heads down obsessed over customers, and let our competitors obsess over us, then we'll be in a perfect position. So that was the strategy, and, it's, and, um, and I think it's worked very well. The, 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 um, today, instead of having $60 million a year in annualized sales, we have over $2 billion a year in annualized sales. We have about, instead of 125 employees, about 7,500. Um, and we have, instead of at the time, 340,000 customers, today we have uh, 23 million customers. So I think that the lesson to be learned here is that focusing on customers really does work. And, um, and so anyway, that's been our strategy. I think it's worked well. There's a lot that's going to happen in the future. And uh, what, some of the things that we are most excited, I, I believe this is day one for e-commerce as an industry. I believe that we will see more happen over the next five years than we saw happen over the last five years. Or at least that's a very controversial topic right now. Um, you know, I, last year I had to, I have, I have this, I have a, a presentation I do, the myths of the internet. Um, and I've ha I have to change them continuously because they shift so fast, uh, what the myths are. Last year, one of my myths was that the internet will change everything. I said, look, the internet is not going to change everything. And I can go through this whole list of things that's not going to change. And then um, this year, I had to change it. To the, the myth now is that the Internet is dead. You know, the Internet is not dead either. So it's, it's very, very interesting how this, you know, how you sort of follow these things along. But the thing that will drive the next five years of growth in the Internet is what always drives sustained growth, which is improvements in customer experience. And this will come from a few different things. It will come from technology. Um, so you'll see, uh, uh, you know, uh, sort of the most fundamental way to look at this is that the fundamental trade you're making when you operate an e-commerce business is you're trading real estate for technology. But real estate gets more expensive every year, and technology, according to Moore's Law, gets dramatically cheaper every year. That's a fundamentally sound trade. You'll see, and by the way, Moore's Law with microprocessors has a doubling of price performance about every 18 months. Right now with bandwidth, you're seeing an equivalent sort of law, but with doubling every 12 months. Bandwidth is getting cheap really, really fast. You're going to have moving images uh, on Amazon.com at some point in the future. I think of this as the, you know, the intelligent person's QVC, um, because you'll actually be able to you know, bring that stuff to you instead of it's your, you know, what you want to see instead of having to sort of wait um, to see what they want you to see. And, but, but you can do a lot of merchandising with moving images. One of the uh, instant on, some of these things, I like to focus on the very basic technologies that will make a big difference. 
90 seconds is a long time to wait for a computer to boot up. That's why people still use phone directories instead of like the 411.com service on the internet. It's just faster, you, you, you know, if you can alphabetize it all, it's faster to actually look it up in the phone directory. Um, those things will change. Ubiquity of computing, and by this I don't mean what I think people normally mean. Today, 40% of households have computers. I think uh, the interesting question five years from now is not what fraction of households will have computers, but what fraction of households will have three computers? I put a second computer in my kitchen, and it's doubled my purchases from Amazon.com. Um, and I strongly recommend to all of you, please, add a computer to your kitchen. Do not wait. Um, and then I will challenge you, by the way, to read the customer reviews of the OXO Salad Spinner. Um, the OXO Salad Spinner has such amazing customer reviews. They read like sexual experiences. And if you... I challenge you, even if you will buy an OXO salad spinner if you read those reviews, even if you hate salad. That, that is how good those reviews are. Um, the, the, uh, uh, there will be other uh, improvements that will come from technology. There will be improvements that will come not from technology, but just from invention, from thinking of new things that are possible with technology right now that nobody's just thought of yet. Um, some of the ideas that we've pioneered, uh, like, like customer reviews, have dramatically improved the experience at Amazon.com over the years. Um, so that is something that I hope five years from now, we are seen as a company that's even more innovative than, than we have been seen as having been over the last five years. By the way, that's a hard thing to do as companies get bigger because when you're a startup company, you have nothing to lose, so it's easy to be innovative. As you get bigger, you have something to lose, and so it gets harder and harder to take risks. The customer reviews themselves were a risk. There were great debates inside Amazon.com um, when we did customer reviews because we would get incredibly hostile letters from book publishers who would say, the typical letter would start out with, um, you know, perhaps you don't understand your business. You make money when you sell things. And why do you allow negative reviews in your catalog, especially the one of my book? Um, and, you know, we would write back and say, look, the reason that we allow these reviews is because we, uh, we don't make money when we sell things. We make money when we help people make purchase decisions. That's different. Because we have all the books, the good, the bad, and the ugly. And if you're going to carry all the books, you better help people decide. So that's, that's been um, every piece of innovation uh, uh, comes with you know, potential landmines and, 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 and a whole set of critics and usually a whole set of supporters. Uh, a pioneering company has to move in new directions and I think that's a part of our DNA. So I'm very hopeful that five years from now we will still be as innovative as we are today. We've got a lot of stuff in, in the kind of in the hopper right now that we're working on. You know, the large majority of it isn't going to be successful, but pieces of it I hope are going to be every bit as useful to customers as our customer reviews have been as our personalization has been, and so on. Um, and then finally, something else drives growth because it improves customer experience. And that is the feedback loop between the uh, industry, the new industry players, companies like Amazon.com, and the existing infrastructure. So if you uh, look at Amazon.com today, we use the infrastructure companies like United Parcel Service and the U.S. Postal Service, exactly the way people have been using them uh, prior to e-commerce. So we adapt our business practices to them. The same is true of manufacturers. So in our toy business, we buy Barbie in a four-color box with a cellophane window and a lot of air, and that's not a good way to buy Barbie for an e-commerce company. You actually want the manufacturer to change the way they do business to better support e-commerce. They won't do that until e-commerce as an industry is of a certain size. And then once that industry is of that size, they start to make some changes. It's just starting to happen now. And then those changes, of course, benefit e-commerce. And then e-commerce gets bigger because those changes have improved the customer experience. Now that the industry is bigger, the manufacturers circle around again and do even more improvements because it makes sense for them to do it. You can see this in uh, 
uh, Price Costco and Sam's Club, the big warehouse club format. Price Costco, Costco innovated that format. And, and um, one of the things that makes their format work is these really large portions of things. So, you know, in the beginning, though, they couldn't get Procter & Gamble to make planet-sized tubs of Tide. You know, they, that, that takes time. You have to get a certain amount of scale before you get the planet-sized tub of Tide. So that is, um, those are the, some of the drivers for e-commerce over the next five and ten years. I am incredibly excited, uh, and I want to close telling you our, our mission. And, and we have, our mission is a little bit like Sony's mission coming out of World War II, because Sony had a very interesting aspect to their mission. And they wrote this down. This, was, this is not something uh, that, that, that they thought about casually. This was a very conscious thing they were trying to do. Sony wanted to make Japan known for quality. Not Sony. They didn't want to make Sony known for quality. They may want to make Japan known for quality. So the mission was bigger than Sony. And what we want to do is we want to be Earth's most customer-centric company. And what we hope to do is to... And we, we, ha we have a definition of what we mean by customer-centric, but, but that's not the important point. The Earth's most customer-centric company, and by doing so, we, we, we want other companies to copy us. And so the big mission, the mission that's bigger than us, is to get, is to kind of uplift the entire worldwide standard for customer service and customer experience. If we can get other companies to copy that, then I think we will have done something truly meaningful and something we can all be very proud of and tell stories to our grandchildren. And with that, I will close and I'll take questions if there are any. Go ahead. Yeah, in trying to understand what customers want, that means a great deal of real-time information. Very few companies can see your website experience of the customer. By the way, I'm going to repeat these. I, I, I suspect that not everybody can hear them. We, and that and the wireless technology hasn't caught up with Princeton somehow. So there's no, <laughs> there, are no, there are no wireless mics here. We were talking about that earlier. But we can, we can, I can relay. How do you learn enough about a customer's experience on a website like yours without being intrusive in your information gathering technology? So the question is, um, to the, I guess to the degree you want to personalize the experience, is that what you're getting at? How do you, how do you, to personalize an experience on the website, which we do, we greet you by name, based on your past purchases, we recommend things that we think you'll like. And I think the question is, um, how do you do that while respecting people's privacy or something like that? How is do you it? collect enough data to make choices about the website? Uh, well, we don't collect. So I think there are different ways that are going to be experimented. The question is how do you – so I didn't have the question quite right. The question is how do you decide which data to collect to be able to make those customization decisions? Is that a better framing of the question? So we have to negotiate the question for a second because I, I, I'm not sure I understand it. Okay, so, I, so I, I think I do have it now. So, and I think what I just said is the question. So, so the, I, I do think so, right? I, I mean, yes, good, okay. <laughs> Thank you. Um, and I, the answer is I think that this is going to be an era of grand experimentation. So you're going to see a lot of companies collecting different kinds of information, trying to see what works and what is the right balance on the issues that you're talking about. And... I believe that privacy is going to be one of the prominent issues of the 21st century. It's going to be a prominent issue not only in e-commerce, but in a whole bunch of areas. Uh, it's going to be a prominent issue with um, uh, physical world companies as well. It's going to even be a prominent issue. I think there are towns now in the United States that have installed security cameras on every corner, and their crime rates decreased by 80%, but you really want cameras on every corner. So, you know, these are the kinds of things that are going to happen. And what happens when the cameras can be the size of dust motes um, and just sort of float around in the air? Uh, there are very strange things that are going to happen over the next 100 years with respect to technology that are going to challenge 
us as a society to figure out how we want to deal with privacy. So that's sort of the big answer. The small answer to the question is, in our case, we don't collect what you would think of as demographic information. So this was a, this was a fad early on in the life of the web. It still is for some sites that rely heavily on advertising um, because advertisers want to know, is their audience male or female? Is their audience 35 years old or 65 years old? Those are things that are really important to advertisers. We have never collected that information. Um, early on, some e-commerce companies did, and I thought the way they did it was particularly weird because they, um, some of them did it sort of as a, as a bar to entering the store. So it's like before you can shop here, you have to disclose to us whether you're male or female. Um, first of all, under those circumstances, people will just lie. Um, uh, so it's kind of a senseless thing to try and collect anyway, because people are like, I'm not going to tell you. Oh, all right, I'm 85, and I'm female, um, and, and, my, and I make, you know, a million dollars a year. That's me. Okay. So, so, um, so collecting that kind of information, to me, seems a little silly. What, what we do is we use your past purchases to personalize the website. So when you look at, and we use a technology called collaborative filtering. So we use... The, the stream of your past purchases, and then we compare your past purchases to the past purchases of our other 23 million customers, and we build a statistical aggregate of those 23 million customers whose purchase history is very similar to yours. And then we look, and so call that the statistical aggregate. You know, I think of it, you can also think of it as your, like, electro, your electronic soulmate. And then we look at the things that your electronic soulmate has purchased that you have not. And then we recommend those things to you. And it works. And people like it. So the trick with, um, with doing this in a way that is to do this in a way that earns trust. And it's very difficult uh, it, with a new industry. So you think about there are all kinds of industries that have a tremendous amount of personal information. Banks, hospitals, uh, insurance companies. Insurance companies, especially health insurance companies, have some of the most private and personal information. And these companies get bought and sold all the time. The information gets transferred back and forth. But the whole industry has a history of keeping personal information personal. So over the decades, they've sort of earned that trust. And there are also a, whole, there are a series of regulations that also enforce that. I think, by the way, I think regulation in this area is inevitable. Um, and it's probably a good thing because it will level the playing field. We, we have to to sort of work together as a society to get those regulations right. But if we get a good set of regulations, I think we'll be better off than if we have none. So there, the, the, this will take care of itself. The companies that succeed, if they're going to use things like personalization as a part of their business strategy, which we do, those companies are going to have to earn the trust of their customers or they're not going to succeed. Yes. Why aren't we making money? Let's see, six minutes uh, for that question. Usually that's the first question. Um, so thank you for your patience. Um, um, we, we, um, so if you, if you look at our company, um, we break our business into three segments. Our U.S. books, music, and video segment, which is our most mature business. The books business is now just over five years old. The music and video businesses are two and a half or so years old. So those are our most mature businesses. Then in the U.S., we have another segment that is our early stage businesses, toys, tools, electronics. By the way, let me brag just for a second. Electronics, as of the month of September, so for the first month ever, is now the second largest business at Amazon.com. It's just past music, even though music has been growing very quickly. So it's something we're very proud of. Um, the, and, and, and I just avoided buying a CD player uh, on the basis of a bunch of very negative customer reviews about skipping. So it's a, even customer reviews are working there. Now, what, what, what uh, the, this, this second segment of businesses, those businesses are all either about a year old or younger. So the electronics business is about a year old. The toys business is about a year old. Kitchen and tools are a little younger. Now, those businesses... Uh, together with our international business, Amazon.co.uk, that's the third segment, Amazon.co.uk, Amazon.de, and now Amazon.fr. Those businesses are growing very rapidly, but they are very young, and they are, in, they are still in an investment phase. If we had stayed just in books, music, and video, 
the company would be profitable today. It would uh, have, a, uh, it would probably have a much, much smaller market cap than it has today because the market size and the potential would be much smaller. But the company would be profitable. I mean, if we'd stayed like a U.S. books, music, and video company. So uh, that would certainly have been a choice, and there would have been nothing, you know, immoral or unethical about that choice. But it certainly, it wasn't what we wanted to do, number one. Number two, customers were asking us to get into these new product categories. And our European customers were asking us, can't you build facilities here and get the shipments to me faster? Even if I want to buy English language books in Germany, I wish the books were housed here in Germany. So we, we uh, made a very conscious decision that we were going to invest in this business because we believe so much in the fundamentals of the business. Uh, but, but the business model does work. This is something people questioned for a long time. Uh, with you know the, the the kind of comment that would be made is, aren't you guys selling dollar bills for 90 cents? And if you're doing that, isn't it easy to get 23 million customers? Well, the answer is, of course, we're not selling dollar bills for 90 cents. We sell dollar bills for about a dollar 20, and the and the uh, uh, and the U.S. books, music, and video business demonstrates that. That business in the second quarter of this year had a 10 million dollar operating profit. Now, internally, we do have a uh, target for when the company as a whole, when the, in, in fact what will happen is the U.S. books, music, and video business will be big enough and profitable enough to then cover the investment phase of our early stage businesses and our international investment. We have a goal when the company as a whole will be profitable, but we do keep it internal. Yeah. Actually, so what you may not know, so I'll, the, the question was um, a lot of what we had to do, a lot of the success was customer service was good and we discounted the books a lot. But actually for the first two years, we didn't discount the books. Um, and it was our fastest rate of growth. Um, our discount rates now, of course, are significantly lower than they were then. Um, but our prices have varied over time, always in response to competitive pressures. Well, so the question is, um, we've changed some of our discount policies, and how is that affecting sales? Um, the, the direct answer to the how does anything affect sales, you could ask me that about anything, and I would say I can't tell you. Um, we're going to announce our quarterly results in just a few days, and you know the SEC would come put me in leg irons if I told this audience um, anything about sales, which I'm certainly not going to do, because um, I hate leg irons. They're, they're so... <laughs> They're so very clunky, you know, it's that clinking sound, all that, it, it really bothers me. Um, but, the, but, if you, um, uh, but to answer the question more generally, um, we have, cons we have uh, over a long period of time, have, you know, on different segments of our business, on particular products, increased prices and lowered prices. We just went through last week and lowered prices on roughly the top 1,000 best-selling electronics items. So there are different parts of the, hint, hint, um, there, are different, there are different parts of the store which, which, uh, uh, which will have different prices at different times. The commitment that we make is to always be competitive with people offering even a quarter decent service level. That's our internal standard. Anybody, I don't, I can't see upstairs, but yes, there's, you guys are like silhouetted against the brightest lights in the world. Yeah, go ahead. You and the tie there. Okay, so the question is, um, w basically, five years from now, will there be companies that are just Internet companies, and will there be other companies, well, will there be any companies that aren't Internet companies? Because Andy Grove said um, that five years from now there won't be any companies that don't use the Internet. The right way to think about this is the Internet is not an industry. 
And the best analogy for the Internet is not a vertical industry. The Internet is a, is a thin, horizontal enabling layer. The best analogy is electricity. So electricity affected every industry to one degree or another. Some industries are completely transformed. And as it transformed those industries, probably there were completely new companies born that thrived and other companies that you know, went away as a result. You know, they, I don't know what happened to the candle makers as electricity came online, but they probably switched to decorative candles and they probably found that their market size was much smaller. Um, so elect but then there would have been other industries that would be dramatically improved by electricity but not transformed by electricity. And that is what the internet is like. And so I think you will see the, the, uh, the no black and white answer can be given to your question. In fact, what you will see is that it will be different in every industry, the degree of transformation that occurs. Yeah. One more question? Maybe we can, we'll, we'll, let's take this one, then we'll try to, I, I didn't take any from upstairs, so, but I already pointed at you, so go ahead. I, now I feel all guilty. Sales tax. Yeah, we're against it. Yeah, we're we're. <laughs> I I, I um, yeah. I mean, I think that you know we ought to go the other way and eliminate all the sales tax or something. I don't know. I I I think that you know there's a solid argument to be made that it is the the, the argument that I make is why should we be a tax collector for a state? that gives us no services. So that's the, you know, in Washington State, we do collect taxes, but we also get fire protection in schools and all sorts of stuff. But when we ship something to another state, um, you know, if we don't have any business presence there, if they want to collect taxes of their citizens, fine. But I don't think that we should really be the ones doing it for them. Um, now, the federal government could tell us, oh, yes, you are. And if they do that, we're going to do it. But, but I think it's a bad idea. Shocking, I know. Uh, yeah, right there. <laughs> you guys, it sounds like everybody heard the question. So, um, it, it's actually, you know, I'll tell you um, the extraordinary volatility in our stocks in our stock price has absolutely no effect on me except for one feedback loop, which I do spend some time uh, working on, which is we have as a company made the decision uh, to compensate our employees with stock options as a significant fraction of their, of their compensation. Now, I believe very strongly that this is the right thing to do. Um, and I think that if you want employees to act like owners and to be owners, well, gosh, you got to make them owners. But, but it is also a weird thing to do in another sense. I mean, think about what you're really doing. You are outsourcing your compensation strategy to Wall Street, which is a weird thing to do since you can't control Wall Street, not in the short term. Now, in the long term, of course, companies get to decide uh, what happens to their stock price. So nobody knows what the stock price is going to do tomorrow. I'm always so amused. I, I read, um, I picked up USA Today yesterday, but it could have been any paper. And there, you know, the headline is, you know, is Nasdaq carnage over? You know, and anybody who claims to know what's going to happen to the short-term stock price of something like the Nasdaq is just crazy. They're delusional. Um, people can know what's going to happen, you know, over the long term if they do some fundamental analysis. They can sort of get some ideas. Um, but you know, I think it was Benjamin Graham who said uh, that in the um, in the short term, the stock market is a voting machine. In the long term, it's a weighing machine, and I think that's really true. So one of my jobs at Amazon.com is to remind the employees as frequently as possible, and on the way when the stock is going up and when the stock is going down, both directions, that the short-term stock price is not a good indicator of what's actually happening. Um, one of the great ways for people to think about this, and I remind people, you know, our stock is up a factor of 15 over the last three years. And so for most of that period of time, this has been, you know, pretty heady success on the way up. And we have a lot of employees who, uh, I, you know, where I, I would get in front of an all-hands meeting and say, you know, when the stock is up 20% in a month, don't feel 20% smarter. Because when you do, 
then when the stock is down 20% a month, you're going to have to feel 20% dumber, and it's not going to feel as good. So the, the, the overriding characteristic of our stock, in my opinion, at any given point in time, is not the absolute level, but the volatility, which is extraordinary. Um, and, uh, uh, and that means, by the way, you know, for those of you who, under, who know Black-Scholes uh, option pricing, Models, you know, volatility actually makes options really valuable. So the options we give out to employees are extraordinarily valuable, uh, valuable because the stock is so volatile. But the the, uh, uh, the what we're what 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 my job is is to get owners to think long term. That's one of my jobs because ownership is the right thing for employees, in my opinion, but it comes with a responsibility to think long term. And that's true of ownership in everything. So it's true whether you rent a house or own a house. If you own the house, you think long term. If you rent a car, you think short term. So we don't want tenants at Amazon.com. We want owners. But owners have that special responsibility. That's the major impact it has on me. Thank you. Thank you for a most inspiring speech. We have a little gift for you, and this is this reclining noble tiger. And this tiger, according to the manufacturer's specification, he says this reclining tiger symbolizes nobility, valor, speed, and grace. <laughs> it is meant for those who have successfully navigated the corporate jungle. <laughs> Thank, you. Thank you. That is cool. Oh, look at that. And it sits on this. Would you like to read it out loud? It says, in appreciation for his presentation of the 6th Gordon Wu 58 Distinguished Lecture, School of Engineering and Applied Science, Princeton University. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you guys. Shop early and often. <laughs> that was perfect.